Happy Thanksgiving! I'm Cassie and this is Crime and Cassie and All Things Creepy. If you're new here, I go over true crime cases with you all that I can't get out of my head. I have to talk to somebody about it and that somebody is you. If that sounds like your kind of thing, make sure you are liking, subscribing, wherever you are watching or listening. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and now Facebook at CrimeXCassie. Basically, you know, bonus content, memes, stories, whatever. If you're not new here, then welcome back. I love you so much. In all seriousness, I obviously witnessed something horrific and I needed a minute. So thank you so much for your patience and your thoughts, your prayers, your kind words. It seriously meant the world to me, so thank you. A lot of the comments were like, please go see a therapist about this. And I'm like, I already need to see a therapist, babe. Add it to the list. We can forget about mom for a while. Mom, I'm kidding, that's from Wedding Crashers. Love you. I'm doing well. Thankfully, there has been an arrest in the shooting, so hopefully, we're headed towards justice and the world can get a little bit safer. The police are releasing almost no information. It's kind of weird, but as soon as I have a concrete understanding on what happened, I will definitely share with you guys. That being said, for the time being, I'm only going to start releasing two episodes per month. A lot goes into it and I never want to rush anything for you guys. I want to give you the best content possible and I want to do the victims justice. The episodes are still going to be on Thursdays. Obviously, today is not. I wanted to make sure that I had this released before Thanksgiving. I was just going to skip this week before, but I missed you guys and I really wanted to give you this episode. So moving on, it is Thanksgiving. I want to know what everybody's doing. Are you hosting? Are you going somewhere? Are you working? Are you staying in? Either way, I hope you get a plate from somebody. My holidays are like the movie Four Christmases. They're always crazy and chaotic, but I love it. I'm the car bringer and the car beater. Today's episode is Thanksgiving-ish in that it took place in November. And I had first heard about it when I was a teenager and I was thinking, what show is that? I remembered it was a distinct voice and my first thought was Cold Case Files, but spoiler alert, it didn't end up being a cold case. So I was like, okay, that couldn't be it. And it ended up being City Confidential, if anyone remembers that. If you haven't seen City Confidential, it is an amazing show. I love hearing the background on towns. This story starts out in Hermosa Beach, California. Hermosa is Spanish for beautiful. And I'm not even kidding. I'm pretty sure that was like one of my screen names when I was younger. <sighs> I hate myself. Hermosa Beach is about an hour south of Los Angeles. This town is, to me... A Pennsylvanian who's never been to California is like the stereotypical California town where there's surfing, mansions, people playing beach volleyball, everybody's beautiful. It has small town vibes still where everybody kind of knows everybody. It's a casual boardwalk kind of town, but it's not a boardwalk. They have something called the Strand, which is a paved pathway that stretches over 20 miles along the Pacific Ocean coastline. People are rollerblading, they're jogging, everyone's tan. Again, just my stereotypical view as a Pennsylvanian. 
Hermosa Beach came to be in the year 1900 when a developer decided to turn pieces of his ranch into a town and named it Hermosa. It was originally just supposed to be a summer resort until the 1940s when LA's soaring aircraft industry turned it into a year-round population. It was one of those places to be if you were a jazz fan or a jazz musician in the 1950s. In particular, it's home to the world-famous Lighthouse Cafe, where anyone who was anyone in the jazz world had played. In the 1990s, it became more known for the land of hot people. Everybody's a model. Everybody's very, very into fitness. They have an Ironman competition, and I'm like, okay, that's fitting. I've heard of that. But no, what I'm thinking of is the Ironman triathlon. An Ironman triathlon basically consists of a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bicycle ride, and a marathon 26.22-mile run completed in that order with a total of 140.6 miles. It is widely considered one of the most difficult one-day sporting events in the world. That's what I thought this was. But no, the Hermosa Beach Ironman competition sounds way more fun to me. The Hermosa Ironman competition consists of a one-mile-long run on the beach, a one-mile-long paddle in the ocean, and then you get to pound a six-pack of beer when you're done. That's it. They have a Gold's Gym. If you're super into fitness, you know Gold's Gym. It's basically where the OG bodybuilders and fitness models would go. One of those gym goers was model and up-and-coming actress Linda Sobeck. Linda Elaine Sobeck was born July 9th, 1968 to father Bob and mother Elaine. She also has a brother named Steve. She grew up in Lakewood, California, which is a blue-collar community about an hour away from LA as well. Growing up, Linda was a tomboy. She would never wear any makeup. She was a little bit shy. She was clumsy. Relatable. In junior high, Linda's mom wanted her to be more outgoing, so she started getting her a little bit more into makeup, got her into modeling, started getting her into some pageants, and through that, Linda found her confidence through the camera. She ended up getting into an agency, and it said that while she wasn't a natural because she was a little bit awkward and clumsy, same, but what she lacked for in natural abilities, she made up for in drive. She was right under 5'4", so she was too short to be a supermodel. And, you know, honestly, same, guys. You know, I totally could have been. It's not my looks. It's my height, okay? It's not my looks. So she starts to do a lot more fitness and glamour modeling for amateur photographers. She eventually starts doing more and more serious photo shoots and becomes noticed. And in 1989, at just 21 years old, she lands a spot on the LA Raiderettes. She had been dubbed Raiderette of the Year at one point and even made the cover of the Raiderette calendar. She stayed with the Raiderettes about four to five years, depending on the source, and during that time, she would get her family tickets, she would get them into parties, she obviously made a lot of really close friends. One of her friends and fellow Raiderette even nicknamed her Little Fawn. That stuck out to me. That's something that I had remembered from watching that City Confidential years ago, so I just thought it was worth mentioning. But she called her that because she said she reminded her of Bambi and she had those sleek, long legs and loved to dance, but wasn't coordinated and had this precious awkwardness. Obviously, her stint with the Raiderettes earned her more opportunities and Linda was ambitious, so she would go nonstop, sometimes even doing three photo shoots in one day. She would personally keep in touch with photographers and magazines trying to earn as much work as she possibly could. Even though she started to become more and more successful, her humility remained the same. 
She was so humble, so down to earth, so bubbly. She was really close to her family. She would actually talk to her mom multiple times a day. You know, she was a church going gal, but work hard, play hard, am I right? She still had to live it up. She was reaping the benefits of her hard work. She was living this very upscale life. One of her friends and another model, Angelica Storm, said that they would hang out with rock stars. They would get backstage passes. They would get limos sent for them. And obviously this is all very glamorous, but work was hard and you had to be perfect constantly. Linda worked out constantly. She had to maintain her hair, her skin at all times. So much pressure. She knew she could only model for so long. And if the Kardashians have taught me anything, it's that a model's career is dead at 25. But Linda had bigger plans. She wanted to get into the world of acting. On November 16th, 1995, Linda is now 27 years old. She's living in Hermosa Beach and she's ecstatic to say the least. She has her first major audition on a little show called Married with Children. I feel like this would have been perfect for her. Linda looked like the quintessential 90s babe. Kelly Bundy vibes all day. Linda is still hustling and bustling. She's always trying to squeeze in an extra job. And on the morning of her audition, she gets an opportunity for a photo shoot. She's like, okay, my audition isn't until 6.30, so I'll have plenty of time. I'm gonna get this money. At about 10.45 in the morning, Linda talks to her mom and she tells her, I'm running late for this photo shoot, but I'll call you when I get back. And she doesn't tell her mom or anyone else for that matter where she was going or who the photo shoot was with. Linda's mom stays up waiting for her call, but the call never comes. And after finding out that Linda never showed up for her audition for Married with Children, her family and her roommates are starting to get worried. When they start calling around all of her friends and nobody's heard from her, they know that something is wrong. Linda didn't have a cell phone. This is the mid nineties. Not a lot of people had them yet. And she isn't answering any of her pages. Within the first 24 to 48 hours, her family files a missing persons report with the Hermosa Police Department. Right away, the DA gets involved, but all they really have is the tip that Linda's mom says that she was going on this photo shoot, I don't know who, with. And Linda had worked with so many photographers, so it's like finding a needle in the haystack. Linda's friends and family, they make flyers, they offer a reward, police open a tip line, and right away it's of huge interest to the media. Hermosa Beach is a safe community with a relatively low crime rate. They question everybody in Linda's life. They quickly gather that she could definitely be a target being in the spotlight and you know they're checking Gold's gym. They haven't heard from her so they're like okay we're gonna dig into her romantic history. They find out she had dated Lorenzo Lamas. If you don't know who Lorenzo Lamas is, he was an actor best known for soap operas like Falcon Crest and The Bold and the Beautiful. I know him as Shane Lamas's dad just from seeing her in a bunch of reality shows back in the day. Police clear Lorenzo and they learn that she had most recently been in a relationship with a bodybuilder who was described as demanding. And apparently after their breakup, Linda was heartbroken. They clear him and after about four days, leads start to dry up. So police are basically left waiting for tips from the public. They're about to get a tip that cracks this case wide open. Roughly 35 miles from Hermosa Beach, a man who had been sentenced to community service is cleaning up an area 
in the Angeles National Forest when he comes across these photos of a beautiful woman and, you know, he just puts them in his backpack and takes them home. Three days later, he sees that beautiful woman's face plastered all over the news and sees, oh, she's missing. So he thankfully contacts the police and they go to the spot where he said that he found the photos and they find a treasure trove of evidence. They find more photos of Linda, they find her day planner, and they find a lease agreement for a Lexus SUV. Now this Lexus is rare. It's a prototype Lexus LX450, and there are only two in existence. Police, Linda's family, and her friends start to scour the Angeles National Forest. After hours of searching, one of Linda's friends is about six miles away from where they had found the other evidence, and they find Linda's makeup bag and black stockings. Police are processing evidence and they notice one name that shows up on both Linda's day planner and that rental agreement for the Lexus SUV, Charles Rathbun. Charles Rathbun was born October 2nd, 1957. He was raised in a quiet middle-class neighborhood in Worthington, which is a suburb of Columbus, and he was the youngest of four children. He started to develop an interest in photography in high school and began taking photos for his school newspaper, The Chronicle. In 1977, he entered a program at Ohio State University where older students would basically take a variety of classes and ease into college. He ended up staying in the program longer than most. It actually didn't offer a degree of any kind, but he kind of just stayed in it for a while. While at Ohio State, he was working at a Kroger's grocery store, and one night he tells one of his co-workers, I have a flat tire, can you give me a ride home? And this was a 21-year-old married woman. So she gives him a ride home, and he's like, hey, I'm you know, into photography, you want to come upstairs and see these photos that I took? She goes into his apartment to see these photos, and allegedly out of nowhere, he attacked and sexually assaulted her. She said that she was saying, no, please don't do this. And that he forced her to the floor, removed all of her clothing, told her he didn't want to hurt her, but would kill her if she made any noise. During the trial, Charles's lawyer said that the sex was consensual. His client's initial statement to police was illegally obtained because investigators denied him the right to have legal counsel present. On February 12, 1980, Charles Rathbun was found not guilty of the sexual assault. Fast forward to 1995, Charles Rathbun, or Charlie as he was called, is now 38 and he's a freelance photographer and he specializes in car photography. Think of like your friend's dad's garages with like car pictures. That's what I'm picturing. That's like the kind of stuff that he did. He worked for major publishing house Peterson under Motor Trend magazine. By all means, he was a very skilled photographer. He was very social. People would say that he was generous. You know, he'd be like, no, I got it. I'll pick up the tab, that kind of thing. But he allegedly had a Jekyll and Hyde personality. He was somewhat eccentric and it said that you either loved him or you hated him. You never knew which Charlie you were going to get. He ran in the same circles as Linda, and the two of them had first met at a car show in 1992. Linda was persistent in trying to work with Charlie. I mean, he was big time. She was chasing that paper. And he ends up booking her for several shoots for Chevy trucks. 
Charlie at the time seemingly had everything. He had a new house. He was in a serious relationship. He had a horse. He was successful. Two weeks before her disappearance, Linda and Charlie had reconnected at an auto show. And basically Charlie's like, hey, stay in touch and puts his number in her day planner. Linda was strictly professional. She was ambitious, but Charlie has a thing for models. And as police are piecing together their connection, they find Linda's missing white Nissan at a Denny's in Torrance, California. Then they get a call from Charlie. He says that he met with her at the Denny's, he flipped through her portfolio, and then they parted ways. He offers to come in and talk to police, but when the time comes, he's a no-show. He apparently stays home and he's watching all of the news coverage about Linda and apparently tapes some of the news segments. He starts drinking heavily and begins writing what police refer to as the sorry notes, which are suicide notes basically saying how much he loved his girlfriend, how successful he was at his job, how great his life was. Then he starts calling his friends. He's threatening suicide. And when they show up, he's drunk. He has a 45 automatic in his hand and eventually it discharges somehow and shoots one of his friends in the arm. Police then have cause to arrest him and they began to question him. And he says on November 16th, he had been hired for a shoot with that Lexus SUV and he hired Linda to model it. He claims they were supposed to be doing action shots with Linda doing donuts. And when Linda wasn't doing it right, he told her, okay, hop out, see how I do it. So he says she exits the vehicle, he gets in, he starts doing donuts and eventually he loses control and hits Linda with the vehicle. He says, I didn't know what to do with her, so uh, I buried her. On November 23rd, he says he's gonna take police to the location of Linda's body. He says it's at a lake bed at the Angeles National Forest. Once there, he's like, oh, I can't remember, and basically takes them on a wild goose chase for hours. He eventually clams up and stops cooperating altogether. Police are continuing to search the area, but it's a massive area. It's about the size of Rhode Island. Her poor family spends Thanksgiving Day 1995 out in that area searching for Linda. Police are finding out that Charlie isn't as professional as he seems. He, again, is known for that Jekyll and Hyde personality. He's known for throwing chairs around the office. He's known for harassing models. One of those models was that friend of Linda's, Angelica Storm. Angelica says that she had bad vibes during a shoot with Charlie, but there were other people around, so she felt safe. And later on, she ends up finding herself alone with him, and he basically lunges at her, but she's able to duck and get away. On the flip side, there were models and co-workers that totally vouched for him, saying he made them feel comfortable. He had apparently asked one of the women out, and when she declined, he was nothing less than a gentleman about it. Police get a warrant for Charlie's home, and they find multiple guns, computers. They find a computer bag, which Charlie says, I took on all my shoots. The computer bag contained a towel, alcohol, and tape, which police, I guess, found hair on. This is all starting to seem like it was planned and that Charlie is a predator. Charlie is kind of unraveling in jail and he again tries to take his own life. 
The trial is going to take place in LA County and they had just been humiliated in the OJ Simpson trial. And they're like, okay, we have to hire the big guns. This is a media circus. Now, who do we get? Well, we're going to get Stephen K. And if you don't remember that name, you'll probably remember his face because he was the prosecutor in the Manson family murders. The prosecution is building its case and they see that Charlie had been tried and acquitted of that rape in 1980. And they see that several others had accused him of rape, but there had never been enough evidence to charge him. Charlie then is going to speak to his attorney and he agrees to assist law enforcement in finding Linda's body. Police don't really have the highest hopes because of what happened before, but hey, what do we have to lose? This is also a circus, by the way. So they put him in a helicopter and several other news helicopters are following. It goes on for a while and police are starting to think, okay, this is another wild goose chase. Charlie is saying, I can't really tell where I'm at from above, which I kind of agree. I I wouldn't know either, but they're thinking, okay, he's just taking us on a ride again. And finally, in late afternoon, Charlie's like, I think this is it. When they find the spot, they see that there's a disturbed part of the ground with stones on top. There they find a shallow grave at the end of like a dirt road. They get an excavation team to retrieve it. And there they find Linda's body. Apparently her body was well-preserved. The weather was cool. She was kind of under a ledge that shielded her from the wind and the rain. Her family that whole time had been holding out hope that she was still alive. They thought maybe he's keeping her somewhere and he's just not disclosing where. So they're so devastated that they can't even bring themselves to identify her body. They have to have a neighbor do it. Everybody in Hermosa Beach is devastated. Linda was somebody that most knew and they could not believe that something like this happened to one of their own. During her autopsy, they can see that she was not hit by a car. Her cause of death was asphyxiation by neck and body compression. And they also see that she was sexually assaulted. Charlie's new story is that he told her to take a shot of tequila but when he handed her the bottle, she just starts chugging. Then she becomes so intoxicated that she comes on to him. She's just so upset. How can you not want me, Charlie? Look at me, look at you. This totally adds up. It makes all the sense in the world. Finally, Charlie caves in. He's only a man after all. What is he supposed to do? She's throwing herself at him. The sex is consensual. Then they continue the photo shoot. Then he hits her with the car. And then he tries to put her in the back of the vehicle to get help. He says she loses it. She starts kicking and screaming and she's kicking this vehicle to damage it. He tries to subdue her and the next thing you know, oh, she's not breathing. To further prove his innocence, just after the trial begins, the defense calls the prosecutors. They say that Charlie's brother retrieved five rolls of film that were used that day and it can prove Charlie's claims. There are photos of Linda wearing the black stockings found with her makeup bag, and they are haunting. The fifth roll of film is double exposed. It shows images of a woman in suggestive posing. She's pretty much nude, and they're claiming that that was Linda that day, and that proves that they had a consensual sexual encounter. The prosecution team analyzes this photo and they determine that not only is it not Linda, it's a different vehicle. Furthermore, the coroner's report shows ligature marks on Linda's ankles and that she fought hard. 
she had bruising on her thighs and one of her earrings was ripped out. That is not consensual. Prosecutors think that Linda went to the photo shoot. She's like, okay, I'm gonna make a quick 300 bucks. She had worked with Charles before, so nothing to worry about there. I'll knock out this photo shoot and then I'll go to my audition later. They think that Charles comes on to her as he's known to do to women from time to time and she rejects him. He then sexually assaults her and ultimately murders her. On Halloween, the jury deliberates for six hours and they come back with a verdict of guilty on the first degree rape and murder of Linda Sobeck and Charles is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. There were rumors of Charlie possibly being a serial killer. He was a suspect in two other murders but actually ended up being cleared of them. But police, when they searched his home, they found dozens of photographs of women clearly portraying death and there wasn't blood or like weapons shown, but it was all very graphic, violent photography. So police had to contact as many women as they could to try to see if everybody was okay. It just makes you wonder if there are others out there. Starting today at the end of every episode, I wanna start doing a quick segment on missing and unsolved cases in hopes that you guys are taking a look at it and hopefully it jogs someone's memory and we can get some of these cases resolved. For this episode, I'm asking you guys for any information you might have on the unsolved murder of Frank Hallett. One of my amazing viewers sent me this case and I could not get it out of my head. I can't understand why this would happen. Frank was a 79-year-old barber. He had been living in Bloomingdale, New Jersey, where he ran his own business that he had had since 1988. He was a married father of five and a grandfather. And I even heard that he's a great-grandfather, but I'm not positive on that. On the morning of April 1st, 2011, a customer enters the barber shop and he finds Frank face down on the floor. He's unconscious, he's unresponsive. He calls police and they determined that the assault took place between 8 a.m. and 11.22 a.m. Frank had severe trauma to the back of his head and had been robbed. They end up transporting him to Morristown Medical Center and he's put on life support, but sadly, Frank passes away on April 5th. His wife, Mary, says that this changed her life and their family's life forever. She says that they couldn't have gotten more than 100, 125 bucks off of him. She wonders if someone had seen that he had had money when he stopped at a deli earlier that morning. In 2012, the borough installs Frank the Barber Boulevard street signs in Frank's honor. Frank was a Korean War veteran. You don't serve your country, build your own business, build this beautiful, loving family only to be beaten to death for a hundred bucks in your own shop. No, there's a reward of $10,000 for anyone that can lead to the arrest and conviction of Frank's killer. If you have any information regarding the murder of Frank Hallett, you're encouraged to call 973-838-0158 or email them at bpd at bloomingdalepolice.com. This was Crime and Cassie and all things creepy. Thank you guys for tuning in. And seriously, thank you so much for your patience. I'll be back in two weeks. And again, the spooky episodes are coming. I just want to build up some true crime for you guys first. I hope you all have the best Thanksgiving. And if you're stuck at work, you go get that holiday pay, baby. We respect it. 
Don't forget wherever you are watching or listening to like, share, subscribe, review. You can find me almost anywhere on social media at CrimeXCassie. Everybody, please stay safe out there. Lock your doors, wear your SPF, and please don't strongly come on to sketchy photographers, okay? They can only control themselves for so long. Uh, no, never go to a photography session alone. Take a friend, take a weapon, buddy system always. Have a happy Thanksgiving.